Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson here with you. And as always, I'm going to give you a little preview of what is coming up. Um, Later on for our inbox, we have a listener who's wondering, how do you set better boundaries with the amount of time you spend on activities if you feel like you should be spending some more time with your family? So how do you carve out time for them? I'm going to weigh in on that. And then for our culture segment, Gary Thomas is back with us, and he's going to discuss a very fun topic. He actually has book recommendations for you. So this is a guy who reads a lot, who has written a lot, who knows a lot. He has a weird affinity for 70s music, which we're not going to talk about. Um, but his book uh, recommendations are, I will say, pretty on point. So we're going to have a fun conversation around that. And then um, here we are, though, for our roundtable. And I want to welcome Georgia, John, and Ryan here. Hi, guys. Hey, hey Lisa. Howdy. Okay, so jumping into this conversation, uh, which will also be, I don't know if we'd call this one fun. We're going to see how fun we can make it because we're going to talk about having doubts about God and navigating those doubts, Um, which I think there's a difference between having healthy doubts and just questions about things related to faith and then just full on like entering a black hole of despair or feeling like you have to question God or defy God in certain things. So I think there is a difference, but we're going to talk about that a little bit here. So, um, you know, I think it was back, um, what was it, John? Probably, I think, episode 769, where we talked about God questions that we have. And that was kind of fun. It was reflective, not as much specifically around doubts. So we'll jump into doubts here. But so before we get started, let's give a little context, talk, um, share with everyone just how long you've been a Christian. And then I'll actually tell you whether or not I actually think you're a Christian. Um, but we'll, <laughs> oh, boy. <no. laughs> so um, I'll just make a, you know, make a call on that and we'll move from there. But Georgia, why don't you start? Uh, I was baptized in fourth grade, but I didn't fully accept Christ until high school. And then I was convicted to be baptized in college to have that be the full declaration of my faith. Okay. So you would say high school Mm -hmm. would be. Okay. John? Mine was right before middle school. I actually got saved when I was about six. I don't remember the specific time I prayed to receive Christ, but age 11 Hmm. is when I'd say it really started to make sense because I was reading the Bible at that time. And a lot of stuff that I said I believed finally started to make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I have a weird faith journey because uh, when I was born and for the first few years, I was Catholic. And then after that, uh, for several more years, I was Mormon. Hmm. And then after that, I was, we moved to the South and I was Southern Baptocostal with a variety of things, but it was mostly just for the community. Uh, however, um, January 1st of 2016, that's when I had an actual encounter with God, and I realized, oh man, like th- he's real. Huh. Um, I got baptized, uh, got rebaptized a few years later, but uh, I would say since 2016, since yeah. the beginning of 2016, that's been my Christian journey. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and I'm, I, I feel like I've changed my answer over the years too, because I would have said that I remember accepting Christ as a five-year-old after a missionary spoke at our church. 
Um, but that was because I felt like I had to hang my hat on like a date, you know, and then I've walked a number of aisles since just to make sure it's stuck. Um, but I actually feel like there's not a time in my life where I remember not knowing Christ. And so for me, it's been that, um, who is it that said a long obedience in the same direction? Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson. Okay. So that idea of like, yeah, I mean, when I wake up today, am I looking towards the cross? Am I trusting God in that? And so I'm definitely grateful for what he's done in my life. So, okay, that said, let's talk a little bit about what is, because it doesn't matter. You may have accepted Christ. You may have whatever. You may be trusting him, but you still are going to wrestle with certain things because we live in a broken world. We live in a world where people are going to contest our faith from inside the church as well as outside the church. So what would you say are some of your biggest struggles with faith or one that you've had in the past? I would say, is he real? Which is the most basic hmm. question, I think. Lots of people ask whether you're a Christian or not. And, and then and actually define that, Georgia. What do you mean by, is he real? Is there a God that created oh. everything? Okay, like and, literally, does he exist? Yeah, does he exist? Okay. Like, is there a God that created everything that has set my purposes before me that is in fully in control and knows the past, present, future, is he there? Mm-hmm. And then I think another one is another big one. Um, why does God allow certain things to happen? Why does he allow people to walk through addictions? Why doesn't he just snap his finger and allow certain people to cease to struggle? Mm-hmm. I think that's a big one, at least for me. And I think it's a, one that many people ask. Mm-hmm. That's good. One that I'm currently in the middle of, I actually told my prayer group that I'm a part of this very thing this week is a better understanding of the Old Testament law because I was reading through it not too long ago and I realized, man, a lot of the commands that God gives here are pretty strict. Mm -hmm. And growing up in Protestant churches, there's a lot of emphasis many times, no matter what denomination you come from, on the love of God, which is very real and it's very present here in the New Covenant. But I think just reconciling, okay, how do I deal with some of the judgments in the Old Testament that to my American biased mind seem very harsh, Mm -hmm. but, and also recognizing the fact, wait, Jesus also came to fulfill the law. So I definitely don't see them as a contradiction. I just need to get a better understanding of the Old Testament law. Mm -hmm. Well, when you see the ground open up and entire families go under, it is a little bit hard to, (laughs) hard to take sometimes. Ryan, how about you? Uh, Current struggles... Um, one that I've I've come out of, but it was actually, as I started working here at Focus, I started running into a lot more Reformed people. Mm. And please uh, give me a moment. I'll, I'll explain. Uh, but no, we'll they, give you a moment. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, a lot of what they presented to me seemed very contrary to what I had come to understand God as. And when I started doing my own research, I also wasn't given great recommendations. So like one of the first people I started to read was Arthur Pink. And that is not where you want to start if you want to maintain reformed friends, uh, because he (laughs) is rather rough. Now, through that, through many conversations and through moving slowly, which I think is going to be a recurring theme in my answers, uh, we've we've worked that out. I'm still friends with with everyone who started those discussions and, the, and debates, mm-hmm. I, I'm dating a Presbyterian girl, so like it's <laughs> like we've all we've all reconciled. It's worked out. Okay, that's good. Well, <laughs> it is funny. I mean, that brings up because there are some questions about doubt and faith that are like literally like 
biblical absolutes and stuff that you're just like, you know, the big questions, does God even exist, like Georgia said. But then there's a lot, too, that you can get, like, sidelined by, like some of the littler things about doctrinal differences and whatever. And it's funny, I've had this conversation with a friend where we've talked about how we both have come to the conclusion that God is deliberately not giving anyone a corner on the truth. So no one denomination or bent of particular interpretation can say, see, I had it 100%. You know, it kind of is a little self-guided guard against pride, I think, in that sense of like, none of us can say that we know. And it gives us a great excitement around seeing Jesus face to face and being able to be like, yeah, you were a... Uh, child, you were a little bit angsty about that. Uh, you know, you needed to just chill. I'm going to work it out in the end. So that's mm-hmm. good. Um, okay. So how, I mean, whether it's big things or little things, how have you been able to address some of your doubts or wrestle with them without allowing it to completely derail your faith? Because I think it is very, we all know someone who has had some level of deconstruction of their faith or some, we know certainly um, Christian music artists, Christian theologians who have walked away from Christianity altogether or who have redefined stuff and, um, you know, very problematic in that sense. So what does it look like for you to ask honest questions, but also really hold to what God says about himself? I take incredible comfort from the book of Psalms, which I read a lot after my mother passed away three years ago. What I love about them is they do ask a lot of questions. David so many times was just laying it out there before God Mm -hmm. and just saying, God, I don't know what to do. I love Psalm 22, which Jesus later quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. I've never been in a church service where somebody literally got up to speak and that was the first words they said. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yet it's at the same time, it's in the Bible. And I take great comfort in that knowing, hey, God can handle my questions. Mm -hmm. He's not afraid of them. What he wants is my heart. Mm -hmm. And when I come to him wanting to seek his face, and at the end of the day, I know he's still my source of joy, he can handle my questions and my emotions. I have found many times that when I really just pour my heart out, Sometimes he'll speak something to my heart or I'll read a scripture a few minutes later that clarifies or I'll have a conversation with somebody later down the road. That has happened countless times in my life. And when I look back and see, hey, he's been faithful even in some of the darkest moments in my life, I can't deny that he's real and his grace is sufficient and will carry me. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And it's funny. I mean, you, boundless listener, will know that many times I've talked, especially when it comes to wrestling with maybe singleness or the fact that you want to be dating someone and they don't want to be dating you, or I've used it in a number of contexts, that the whole concept of pouring out your complaint to God, which he actually invites you to do in the Psalms, because, hello, the person to be complaining to is the one who actually cares and can do something about it, not the person that you want to be dating and doesn't want to talk to you. <laughs> don't complain to them. It will not end well. So, um, But I, I appreciate the fact that God uh, in his sovereignty allows us to come to him and tug on his garment, so to speak. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, there has to be a clarification behind cynical doubt and active doubt. If I were to show you a new way of doing things, or if I were to show you a new hobby, woodworking, for instance, and you started doing that for a few months and you never had a question about it, that would be weird to me because I, in my mind, that signals that you're not progressing. You're not trying new things. You're not doing anything with it. You're probably just showing the exact thing that I showed you and you're just doing that over and over. Questions, when they come out of a, a heart that seeks to understand, 
that shows that you're growing. That shows it's like, okay, well, I see, I see this and I see this new thing and I'm using this thing that you taught me in a new way. And so doubts or, or questions that come out of, uh, uh, a sincere heart. Those are, those are wonderful things that can be used to grow cynical doubt, you know, like what we see on TV and we see people that are just so actively against God. That's something completely different. And I, and people who have sincere doubts, um, versus cynical doubts are, those are two very different people. Mm-hmm. Um, now how I deal with it. Well, I think one of the things that I recommend, I, I know a lot of pastors have moved away from this because they don't want to see us be seen as prosperity gospel or, you know, a variety of things, but you got to look for active ways that God moves in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, Exodus twenty twenty four, he says, build altars where I have caused my name to be remembered and I will come and I will bless you. And when he says where I have caused my name to be remembered, he's not speaking of where I have forced you to remember my name. It's where I have done something great and mighty. Uh, in Joshua, when they, you know, when they were going into the promised land, they built altars. When they crossed the Jordan, they built altars. When the Red Sea was parted and they went to the other side, they built altars so that they could remember the goodness of God in their lives or in the lives of those that came before them. And if they ever wanted to go back to Egypt, they were going to have to walk past all those altars Mm -hmm. that they built showing the goodness of God. And they were just going to have to ignore those. Yeah. I think another thing you're alluding to in that is the idea of like, so much of this has to do with a posture of humility, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that we're even talking so about God and entertaining the idea that, hey, let's ask some questions about God. Uh, remember, it's God. And so, like, <laughs> again, and I see this in entertainment and whatever, this leveling the playing field between yourself and God is so outrageous. And we know that that has not worked well for anyone in the Old Testament mm-hmm. or new mm-hmm. when they decide to go... Um, you know, do a cage match uh, with God and think that they're going to come out alive. I mean, it's just that I think brings up the cynicism of just like, yeah, God, let me tell you what's up and let me fit you into the construct of my life. And God's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, maybe just sit down. All right, Georgia. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was thinking along the same lines where if you have sincere doubts, I think that one is just a good reminder that you sincerely want to know God. You wouldn't be asking those questions if you didn't want to know him more and seek to understand him and his character and all of his goodness. And so I think that's the first thing that I think of when I am wrestling with those things is that I wouldn't be worried about these doubts if I didn't care, if I didn't care about the creator who made me. Um, So I think that's the first thing I have to remind myself of and that I also remind others of if they're struggling with doubts. Um, And I also look to a lot of scripture and I know that's one of those Christian things where we always say, we're like, oh, look to scripture. But I do think that there's this, (laughs) this, obviously there's a reason that we look to it. Um, And I think uh, one being that there are lots of people in the Bible who historically doubted and God came out on top because we know that even though he doesn't need to prove himself because he is the God of the universe, he does because we are human. And I think it's just a sweet reminder of the God that we follow, that he loves us enough to prove himself, even though he doesn't need to. Um, And I think of, it's Jacob, right? Who wrestled God? Yes. Yes, it is Yes, every time. (laughs) Look, there's a lot of J names, and I get sometimes I get them mixed up. But um, I well, always there's Jesus. <laughs> yeah. um, well, we know that he's one. in there. We know. <laughs> okay, yes. but all that to say, uh, I like to think of that a lot. Where um, 
I constantly ask the Lord to come wrestle me and win because I know that mm. even if I struggle with certain things that he is going to win and he is going to prove who he is and show me who he is because I'm asking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's often difficult. Um, and something that's a part of just my story is that I do struggle with scrupulosity OCD, which is uh, just a certain type of OCD. And that one has to do with um, faith and religion and God and asking all these big questions and really doubting, um, is he there? And if he is there, like, how could I ever be good enough? And just, just becomes this whole um, thing of obsessive thoughts and compulsions and those kind of things. And I think what's beautiful about it is that my thorn in my side is uncertainty. And what's amazing is that I have a God who is certain. And mm -hmm. so even though I struggle with those things, um, it's the way that he gets to show himself to me and that I get to know my, my Savior more. Mm -hmm. That's really good. It reminds me of, um, I kind of want to go here because you made me think of this, Georgia, the idea of how it's so easy for us to, and well, I'm not even going to say us, I'm going to say the devil, to get a foothold by cluttering our thoughts and our lives with so many things that are trivial and questions or scenarios or situations that all of a sudden he wants to put a seed of doubt in us, you know, and it could be, you know, the myriad of cultural things going on that all of a sudden we're like, we see something happening in the culture or we see, and it could be sexuality, it could be, um, you know, race relations, it could be whatever. And all of a sudden we're like, well, if God were really good, wouldn't he just, you know, put some kind of a panacea on this or wouldn't mm -hmm. this be whatever he could rescript this or whatever how do you guys navigate those conversations with friends with yourself with kind of making sure you stay out of the weeds and and ultimately what helps you bring clarity when it comes to realizing this is the real thing this is what i have to hang my hat on and everything else is a distraction that's such a good question i have found personally that many times how I'm feeling or the questions I have, sometimes they are very legit and sometimes they're because of life circumstances. Sometimes though, it's a byproduct of what I'm focusing on. Mm. I remember the other day even I was feeling kind of depressed and I, then I looked back and realized I was listening to a lot of music that made me feel depressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that was really just a byproduct of, man, I was listening to all these songs that just made me think about the worst parts of life. Mm. And having a daily time in God's word, it's, I will admit, it's not pretty sometimes when I'm questioning my doubts and stuff and I'm trying to bring them before God, but having that time that I just spend with him and I, I try to take notes whenever I read the word, which helps me to process my thoughts when I'm reading it. And that way I can go back and look and see, hey, here's what God was teaching me in that time. Um, when I have that time with him, I realize, wait a minute, no matter what's going on in the world, this is a kingdom, his kingdom that cannot be shaken. Mm -hmm. And he is my sure foundation. And also looking back at the time when I lost my mom and realizing I felt God's peace more during that season than probably any time in my life. As tough as it was, as difficult as it was and days that I cried myself to sleep, he was still faithful to carry me in that time. So whenever I'm tempted to doubt, I just have to go back to the fact, hey, he's been there when nobody else could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you were just kind of discussing, you know, what do you hang your hat on? And um, I think one 
that I've been really struggling with just because um, my brother's not a believer. And a lot that has to do with that is because of addiction. And I do think that that's one of the biggest ones where I do struggle with wondering, like, God, if you're, like, good, then, like, couldn't you just snap your fingers and, like, yeah, like, just couldn't you snap your fingers and make that go away? Mm -hmm. Um, But then I just have to remind myself that, like, we do live in a world where certain things are allowed to happen not because our God is bad, but because it makes us realize how much more we need him. And so, yeah, when I talk to my brother about addiction and how hard that is, um, the thing that I just turn back to is that I'm like, Jake, like you can ultimately turn to God with that. And I know that that's not something you want to hear. And I know that that's um, really difficult because our bodies crave the things that they want. But, like, if that's the thorn in his side that makes him love God, then I hope he still struggles mm-hmm. because then he'll know that he needs Jesus. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Well, and you never know what God is going to use. I Actually, Georgia, getting back to answering my own question of what you brought up, what do you hang your hat on? It's like there are two things that I know, and that is God is perfectly just and he's perfectly good and merciful. And somehow how he works in people's individual lives and stories and drawing people to himself and having people go like Ryan through multiple faith journeys and circuitous paths and whatever and figuring this out. I mean, he is going to accomplish his will in the way that he wants to accomplish it. And it's so hard for us, uh, our finite minds that are so linear to understand that we don't understand, you know, when when a path seems inefficient. <laughs> but um, but to understand, I mean, for all of us to be constantly seeking after the heart of God and trusting the heart of God is where we're going to realize, like, yeah, that's our sure foundation. So, yeah, um, to me, it comes down to you got to know what you know, what you know, and. With that, like I, when I had that experience with God, as wishy-washy as that is, that cemented the fact in my mind, God is real. So that's something no one could ever deceive me out of, even though some Christians have tried to do so. Um, so I was like, not okay. the reformed ones, though. No, just no, <laughs> probably not. Put that in there. Uh, <laughs> we don't want your emails or DMs, y'all. Okay, come yeah, on now. Listen, okay. listen. I am a, I'm a, I'm a charismatic weirdo and i have many reformed friends and i'm gonna be at a reformed wedding and seeing it so okay like listen there can be unity across the faith you're so equal opportunity it's amazing yeah. okay here we uh, go but yeah. but but going back to you got to know what you know and when i had that experience with god i understand that's not the bible and that's not you know all these sure foundations but it was for me and i knew that and so you could never move me off the fact that i know god is real now there's some there's some doctrinal disputes we can have, and there's a lot of things we can argue off of, but I know that that's real. And if I know that God is real, and I know that God is eternal, then I start looking at these things, and as I've let the Holy Spirit work on my mind, I have a conscience. And I can look out at the world, and I can see, wow, like I see, I can see a timeline of how thought processes led to these decisions. And not just in you know individuals' lives, but like if you look out at the world and you want to say that everyone is actively reasonable and logical and they always want the best for someone else, you can look at history and know that's not the case. And so when I see cultural issues come up that clash against the beliefs of God, I just, I know what I know. And that doesn't give me the right to 
lash out. That doesn't give me the right to condemn, but it does give me the right to stand my ground, mm -hmm. planted by the river of truth. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I, with love and with grace and with patience, which is something I think a lot of Christians miss, with love, grace, and patience, you just have to not move. Mm -hmm. And you have to speak life into that situation. Mm -hmm. And you have to approach it with grace. Like the first word that describes love in Corinthians is love is patient. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to love someone, be patient, mm -hmm. but don't move. Yeah. Well, that's why I think too of how it is such a grace to us that God has given us his word, which is, you know, really one of the only things that will not perish. Um, we know scripture says that, and scripture interprets scripture. So we can go to scripture authoritatively and get the things that we know matter, the things that are unequivocal. And then from there, yeah, that's why, you know, God can reveal to us through an experience or say like, yeah, okay, I, I see that and I can check it against God's word and be like, yeah, you know, God showed up for me. And because he's not an unemotional <laughs> yeah. being. So it's not like we have to discount that and stuff, nor do we have to discount tears. Um, you know, God God takes our tears. Um, we know that and he stores them up for us. So you guys, thank you so much for being so honest and so raw and real about this. I think this is an, a huge encouragement. It has been to me. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, this was awesome. folks. Hey, 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 it's Lisa Anderson here for our culture segment. Um, we are well into June. And you know, I just celebrated my birthday, which I was very excited about. And so yeah, okay, many of you said happy birthday. And I appreciate that. So thank you. And those of you who didn't, it's still not too late. So it's all good. Um, but that said, I want to reintroduce you. And really, I don't even need to be introducing him anymore, because he's a friend of Boundless. He's a friend of Focus on the family where we live here in Colorado. He's actually now a neighbor of ours living in Colorado himself. Our dear friend, Gary Thomas. Gary, welcome back to The Boundless Show. Happy birthday, Lisa. Yay, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I, I jokingly say, because we just celebrated our 15th anniversary of the show in January. Wow. I say that when I started hosting this show, I actually was a young adult. <laughs> and so I guess that I don't know if that speaks to the longevity of the show or what. But now I'm trying to be that cool, fun aunt who's like sharing, <laughs> dispensing some advice on this end. So um, but you're the cool, fun uncle. So we're going to we'll be you know, we'll we'll dispense the advice today. But we actually want to have a conversation today. And those of you who are new to the Boundless Show or, or don't know Gary, um, you might know him 
as the author of Sacred Marriage. Probably more of you know him as the author of The Sacred Search, because hello, we are boundless. Um, <laughs> but he is also a teaching pastor, as I said, here in Colorado now, woo -woo, at Cherry Hills Community Church. Um, he often uh, speaks, travels uh, to all 50 states around the world, and was actually even our chapel speaker today here at Focus on the Family. Really, um, I would say one of our Christian marriage, really relationship experts in the Christian world today. And so um, so it's really our privilege to have it's you. kind of you. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. So <laughs> because I'm like, you know, there are so many things that Gary is very well-rounded. He is a marathoner. He loves music. Um, don't even get him started on radio countdowns. Um, on Casey Kasem. There's only some, one countdown some that of, matters. Oh, okay, whatever. Some of, <laughs> some of you listening are like, what's the radio? Okay, it's okay. Um, someday we'll fill you in. But today we're going to talk about books, and we're going to talk about great reads. And you're someone who loves to read. Um, you make reading a priority. And so as we're kind of heading into summer, summer officially started uh, this week. In fact, yesterday, if you're listening to the show here on the 22nd. But um, all that to say, we want to talk a little bit about books. So first of all, I want to ask you, why do you even think reading is important? I think in a in an age where it's everything's digital now, people are like getting things in sound bites. People are. What has reading done for you as you have navigated adulthood? There's a famous uh, proverb in the book of Proverbs. We'll talk about the biblical oh, okay. proverbs, Big not P. a Chinese proverb. Big P. <laughs> it says the beginning of wisdom is this: get wisdom. Hmm. And I just think through all of Scripture says, it is the one pursuit you will never get. And there's other passages that she will cherish. She will exalt those who honor her. She will lift them up. Uh, and I believe that reading is one of the most economical ways to get wisdom. Now, you can listen to podcasts like this. You can listen to lectures or whatnot. But neurologically, there is something different about reading a book than a more of a passive media. It doesn't have to be either or. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm -hmm. But there's something about reading, what it does to our brain neurologically, um, the information. I begin every day basically reading three books. I'm reading the Bible. <laughs> I'm reading a Christian classic. I'm reading a contemporary Christian book. And then, this might sound funny to some, I am a better person when I'm reading a good novel. Mm. And they talk about how novels improve EQ. Yeah. And for me as a guy, we tend to be, I don't mean to stereotype, but we tend to be less relationally aware and emotionally aware. Mm -hmm. And novels by good, thoughtful novelists really help me understand the human condition and motivation and the psychology and whatnot. And so I'm usually having half a dozen books mm -hmm. that I'm going through at any given time. Okay. Well, which is fascinating because it is, as you're talking about novels, I'm thinking of great ones that I've loved um, throughout history and writers, you know, in their bodies of work. The whole concept of dialogue, like the way great writers do dialogue and what it means to actually be in conversation with someone, which again is like weirdly becoming a lost art because we're so just talking one directionally in whether it's on social media media platforms or, um, you know, online and via emails or texting and just bullet points. And so 
that that is a great point. Well, I do want to pull back because John, our producer, actually asked you to kind of think through some books that that are big faves of yours. And I do have to lead by mentioning one that is a favorite of us here at Boundless by Dr. Julie Slattery, because yes. you did lead with that one. Her book, Rethinking Sexuality, which we actually had all y'all, I've interviewed her about this book, but we also had her write an article series for us on this and the whole concept of sexual integrity. And yes. for many of you that came, you know, you you were mired in what we, you know, loosely call the purity culture, whether it was in the 90s or 2000s or whatever. And you, many of you claim it wrecked you. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, God, God knows and God's dealing with all of us on many different fronts. But um, talk to us about the value of this book, Gary, because as someone who I introed as being a relationship expert, and you're married uh, well over 30 years now, and, you know, knowing the impact that sexuality has had on our culture, what is Julie saying that other people haven't said? I think she's a prophetess for our time. Hmm. I mean, we've invited her to Cherry Hills to preach. We're going to bring her back to do some training for staff. I've gone through a special, she calls it the sexual discipleship program Mm -hmm. with her. So it's not just an opinion. I mean, I've read her books. I've gone through her teaching. It's the spirit behind what she does. She loves God's word, and she's unstintingly courageous in saying God's way is best. But she has such compassion and gentleness that she expresses God's design for sexuality Mm -hmm. in such a beautiful way Mm -hmm. that sexual sin isn't just something you grit your teeth and deny. It's like that is such a compromise. Mm -hmm. And she's just helped me as a guy understand some of the real critiques against the purity culture. One of the lines she says that this was really helpful for me was that the purity culture divided people into two groups, those who had sex before marriage and those who didn't. She said there's one group in the Bible, all of us who need the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I began to look at this a different way. She helped me see that the purity culture was very different toward women as it was for guys in the way they received it. But here's what I love. She doesn't do what others do, sort of on the progressive wing, saying that the message to save sex for marriage is itself shame-building and harmful. Mm-hmm. She says, no, that's right. It's just the way we communicate it, why we communicate it, and whatnot. And so um, I-, I think she provides the nuance that is lacking in the culture wars. Mm-hmm. I think she's presenting the rubric under which both sides can really get together and say, okay, God's way is beautiful. Um, His commands needed to be heeded because they're beautiful and the best way and true, but it doesn't sound like a burden. It just sounds like, why would we want anything else? And the way that she's able to express it, I, I frankly think because some of the messages were usually, let me just say most of the messages were given by men, some who had hangups and didn't express themselves the best way. And frankly, all of us in the marriage field talk about sex differently than we did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be, we've all kind of grown up and realized some things that we just assumed really weren't necessarily helpful. But I think hearing it from a woman mm-hmm. is healing for wives. I think it's instructive for husbands. Yeah. And that's why I'm doing my best to give her a larger platform in, in our church yeah. in Colorado and 
uh, and beyond. That's so cool. Yeah, I know when I've talked to her about this, I always say, you know, when I first read her stuff, it, it it's so dovetailed with what I've been thinking for years because of just conversations with my friends in this whole idea of, and you said it too, rather than hand slapping and being like, don't, 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 sex is dirty, sex is bad. Okay, but now you're married. Now it's wonderful. <laughs> and then people are like, what? This is like, uh, you know, I'm like on a ping pong table here. Um, I love that really at the heart of it, it is trusting the heart of God. Do you really mm-hmm. trust that God's plans for you are best? And do yes. you trust his heart for you? And if you you trust and you lean into the good things he has for you, it's not about, yeah, it's not about like, here's what I can't do. Here's where I need to deny myself. Um, even though he has very, you know, the boundaries are in pleasant places for those of us who follow him. So I just, I love the way that she frames that. It is so great. Um Okay, you also, now this is a very eclectic list, and it's kind of, you're going to have to talk through a couple of these other ones that you've highlighted, because there are some here, uh, books that you have recommended that I have not even heard of. So cherry pick for me a couple of these, and you got to make your case for them, because I'm like, this does not sound like sitting in a hammock this summer, (laughs) reading a frothy, whatever, you need to defend this. One that will seem so wild, but it's a book I really wish every Christian would read. I call it a classic. Thomas Brooks is seen as as a minor classic writer. If people talk about the Christian classics, he's not the first name that comes to mind. He's not the Mm -hmm. top 10. Mm -hmm. I think he should be. Mm -hmm. I'm not boasting. I'm just being honest. I probably read as many Christian classics as anybody. I started in college and I read something from the classics almost every day. So I've worked through all the basic ones, but he's written one that's called, and this will sound like an old title, The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod. (laughs) This sounds like who even wants to read this? I don't even want to know what he has to say about this, Gary. Like what you, okay, tell us about it. Well, let me just, the reason I love it, no modern writers would dare to write like this. They would never title their book that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But just take it, the mute Christian under the smarting rod. The smarting rod is a Puritan way of just saying things that sting, mm-hmm. things that hurt, disappointments. And he's saying the mute Christian, he's saying that should be our attitude, that we need to respond with surrender and learn from it, and what is God saying to us, and what is he doing in our character, and whatnot, because so often, when I'm under the smarting rod, it's God make it stop, or God why, or God I don't deserve this. You say, well, you do deserve it. Why? Because God wants to grow you. If God makes it stop, you're going to be less mature. I mean, he just flips every objection I have on its end. I think it is a particularly brilliant book. If Thomas Brooks writes it, I think it's worthy to read it. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of one, it's it's a shorter book, but you should read it very slowly mm-hmm. and, and prayerfully. And But don't blame me if you read it and then God brings all of these difficulties <laughs> into your life yeah. because now you know how to respond to them because... You know, it's that's what you're preparing for. Okay. Well, while we're on the topic of downers, um, let's talk <laughs> about your recommendation by Philip Riken, which is going through Ecclesiastes, which is another <laughs> book a lot of people don't want to touch because they're like, the last thing I need to learn more about in my life currently as a young yes. adult is meaninglessness. <laughs> so why he, this is actually about finding the gospel yeah. in that kind of book, yeah. which I don't think people would assume. So it's, where... It's, Brilliant. It's called Why Everything Matters, the Gospel and Ecclesiastes. Philip Riken is a president of a Christian college, and he writes like one, which I mean in the best possible terms. Mm -hmm. He brings in classical literature. It's erudite, but it's very accessible. I mean, he's writing for 
non-academics as well. And he just brings the gospel into Ecclesiastes. You have the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, a lot of wisdom. But what does it mean now looking at it through the lens of Jesus and what he's done? I Here's how much I like the book. I bought a copy for every one of my family members for Christmas. I do that every year. Mm. I'll mm. choose a book. And I just felt like for where they are in life, for general wisdom, uh, it would be a, a great book for them to go through. Okay. Um, you also mentioned here, I'm going to read the title, The Discerning Life, An Invitation to Notice God in Everything by Steve Machia. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Tell This to me sounds like, okay, now we're getting into something. I feel like there's practical application here for us in a, we're, you know, I mean, not that there isn't in the others, but they seem like to have oh, a very I think they're all so strong extremely practical. Okay. 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 But this is actually like life boots on the ground. What are you yes. doing to actually live a God word life? I'm yes. assuming. Talk- yes. Uh, the, the phrase that Machia uses that I think is brilliant is practicing a preference for God. So the discerning life is how do I develop this preference for God? How do I surrender? How do I discern what God is doing? It's very practical. What is life other than learning to give up our independence and learn to live in relationship and dependence on God? And the the discerning life helps us do that, I think, in a brilliant way. I think it should become a modern classic. I don't see the spread of it Mm -hmm. um, like it deserves. Mm -hmm. I really think it's one of those books where um, every serious Christian, I would, I would put that on the list. Okay. If, if every, if somebody's going to read 10 books this year, this should be one of the books they read. Okay. So because you alluded to kind of the classics that everyone talks about and everyone thinks are, are so great or that Christians should read or whatever, can you think of a couple of those off the top of your head that you would say are just like, as a young adult, before you leave young adulthood, what are some of those like been there, done that, people would tell you to read these classics? Well, I would go back to my theological mentor, J.I. Packer, even though he's a classic. He just died three years ago. But his knowing God, I think, is justly beloved. He just says wonderful lines that I, I, I still remember, that those who love God will have great energy for God. They will attempt great things for God. There's a big difference. Now people don't realize that J.I. Packer said this. There's a great difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And mm-hmm. what is that difference? And just going through Scripture, um, the greatest joy in our life, the greatest strength in our life, the greatest fulfillment in our life will come from knowing God. And J.I. Packer, mm-hmm. in his brilliant way, goes through. And if you've read a book by J.I. Packer, you know there are no bad books by J.I. Packer. Yeah. Pursuit of Godliness, he loved the Puritans, and that's sort of a collection of wisdom from the Puritans. Um, I've, I've read so many. I'm reading one now that basically, if I, by the time I die, I want to have read everything that he's written because I've mm-hmm. never been disappointed by a J.I. Packer book. One of the things that I love most about him, which I actually just read about not too long ago, um, is the idea that they they talked of him like when he would take speaking invitations and he would literally just, whatever came up, if he had the time to do it, he would do it. Oh, so even so as an outrageous, I mean, there, you know, we look at him now and think like C.S. Lewis. I mean, we put... <laughs> 
I mean, this is like a big dude who has said big things and written books and whatever. But they said like, yeah, I mean, he would go and sit in the living room of someone in a church that where he was visiting and talk to some college students or he would be. It was just like whoever God put in front of him, he would have the opportunity or make the opportunity to engage with and, and speak to and stuff. And I thought that was such a neat kind of a, a neat framework for how he did ministry and how he shared what he knew. It's 100% true. I, he was my advisor at mm-hmm. seminary, and I was working with a college ministry and invited him to come down thinking we would pack out this church. Mm-hmm. The college students didn't know who he was, and I was mm-hmm. so embarrassed. We probably had, I don't know, 60 or, or so, mm-hmm. and yet he came down from Vancouver, British Columbia to Bellingham. That's about a 60-mile drive, depending yeah. on the border traffic, how long it takes. We says, well, my wife and daughter will love to shop and this <laughs> is so funny because I said, I'm so sorry we, we don't have a lapel mic. Oh, I've got this is this stand up mic. And he goes, It's quite all right, Gary. I, I rarely move below the waist. <laughs> so it, he was just a delightful man wow. who was everything you would hope he would be. My last conversation with him was about one of my books. Mm. Uh, I wrote um, Pure Pleasure, which I talked about at chapel. And I was worried because I was really challenging a very popular person in Packer's theological camp wow. on how we kind of view pleasure. I felt like this person was kind of just viewing pleasure as having to be religious pleasure wow. and maybe denying God's creational pleasures. Hmm. And I didn't want to be a fool, so I just laid it out to Jai Packer. Here's what I'm thinking. And he goes, Gary, I've noticed that for quite some time. I've been waiting for someone to take him on. And he shared wow. some great stuff. And then... This will shock people because he's the author of books that have sold millions. He was always bumming a ride home. And, <laughs> and, and so he said, all right, Gary, would you give your old professor a ride home again? And so I, I drove and we were talking along the way and we were about to get out. I said, look, I'll send you the manuscript so you can check your quotes. He goes, oh, no, don't quote me. If it's helpful for you, just use it. Just take it. Mm-hmm. And then he looks at me and this is about the last words he wrote. I just want you to write a good book. And it was said with this genuine sincerity that he loved books. Yeah. And he just said, we need this out there. I just want you to write a good book. And then we shared that love of books. And I'll cherish that last conversation until I get to see him again in heaven and, yeah. and thank him. Um, but I'd just like to say, because we see one of the books on my top list of 2023 just got blown up in scandal because the pastor had to retire because of things. And it's just, it it happens all the time. G.I. Packer died. And I just want to say his faith was genuine and real. It's just, he was a treasure Mm -hmm. for God's church and people can read his books with uh, security. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, give us one more classic that you may have read years and years ago, but you would always recommend it. Well, I mean, if we're talking Christian classic classic, you can't go wrong with C.S. Lewis, but that's too easy. Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ mm-hmm. is justly beloved. Uh, I think if people want, well, I don't like the long ones, the, if you can get Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, that is a great devotional. You could read that in three minutes a day, some of the best reading you could do. If I could throw in another contemporary classic, I mean, he's been dead for just a few years too, but Dallas Willard, The Divine Conspiracy, The Great Omission, uh, there isn't a book of his that you shouldn't read as well. I think Mm -hmm. for spiritual formation, he has shaped me about as much as anyone. Yeah. 
He is, I, I would say I would put him in the category of having a line that I have probably quoted more often in the last three years than any other line. And that is because I've, I've been learning so much about this recently. Um, you guys have heard me say it on the show. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. <laughs> I was going to guess that. And impress yeah. things. That's, what's, that's just what strikes me as so brilliant in one sentence. He yeah. captures it. It's behind what he does. But there are many brilliant lines. That yeah, that's pretty amazing. All right. Well, let's take a little bit of a turn into... Um, I, you mentioned books of 2023, and you've you've even started lists. You were telling me beforehand <laughs> you try to do this yearly book list, but now you're like, I might have to break it down into every six yes. months because it's so hard. Okay, give me what if you had to say the best book you've read in 2023 so far, what would it be? Uh, can I give you a nonfiction and a fiction? Absolutely. Okay. Well, nonfiction isn't fair because I might put one of Julie's in there, but we've already talked about Julie. Okay. And this one, I don't know where Louise Perry is coming from, if she's a believer or not. She doesn't appeal to scripture, but here's why I would mention her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. We hear so many critiques of the purity movement. Mm that have great legitimacy. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's that. This is the brilliant critique of the hookup culture. Mm. We act like because the purity movement had some poor messaging, yeah. let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And she says, this is how women have been devastated by the hookup culture. Now, let me say, because I don't know where, what perspective she's writing from. Some of the language is really rough. Mm -hmm. You're going to see things that Christ, evangelical Christians might not agree with, but she's brilliant. She's got this brilliant mind where she just says this notion that sex isn't special. She, she has the positive, I should say sex is special. And, and, and people have said that sex is like a handshake. It's like a game of tennis. We, there's nothing sacred about it. And she just says, if that's true, what's behind the Me Too movement? Mm -hmm. People know inherently there's a difference from a boss saying to a young intern, hey, go get me a cup of coffee. I might, I might feel you know, frustrating because she feels like there's more, but she's not going to be offended by it. And then when a boss says, well, twirl around in front of me, there's, mm -hmm. there, there's an inherent difference when it's sexual harassment and irregular. Mm -hmm. She says, that's because sex is special. Mm -hmm. So men and women are different. Now, even some Christians are trying to tear that down, but she explains how denying the differences sets women up in other situations. One thing I just never realized is the vulnerability of single women in an intimate situation with a guy that she knows could really hurt her, if not kill her with his bare hands. And so you talk about consent, but consent is problematic if you're thinking, I, I don't know where I'm at. And so just admitting that and the different ways that we look at sex and experience sex and desire sex. And so she, she slays a lot of these modern <sighs> talking points that just aren't true. And then the last, well, she's got eight that are brilliant. We won't go through all of them. But the last one is uh, marriage is good. <laughs> uh, let, let me do another Stop one that's really helpful. Stop the presses. That some desires are bad. We're told that basically the only thing that's immoral is telling someone what they're doing is immoral, mm. <laughs> that, that, that no desires to be forbidden. She says, no, some sexual desires are really messed up mm -hmm. and they're harmful and they're degrading. So some self-control and this is what will cause like piranhas going after red meat. Some repression is necessary. 
we are all fallen people. We have bent desires. We have to learn that some desires are bad, but people are afraid of where that leads. Well, then are you saying this is bad or that or bad? But just admitting that some desires are bad, I think is a premise we need to wrestle with. And then the end, that, that marriage is good. She talks about the vulnerability of this and that and how this is messed up and that is messed up. She goes, so what's the safest place for sexual expression and raising children? Marriage. It makes so much right. sense. And so I, I think it's a book that if people aren't offended easily, they should read because of her, her brilliance. She's got a great mind. Um, and while it's fair to critique the purity culture, when people are doing it without critiquing hookup culture, mm -hmm. uh, I think we're getting into dangerous places. So that's nonfiction. Yeah. Do you, you want to yeah. say something no, before get, I go? No, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, a more balanced look at that is necessary. So, okay, give me your fiction. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, my favorite novelist of all time is Susan Howitch. She's a British writer. Mm -hmm. She retired about 10 years ago. I've been, I wish somebody knew her until I come out of retirement because <laughs> it's so brilliant. The only thing like I like about getting old is that I read these books in the late 90s. And these are long books. The book I'm going to mention is The Wheel of Fortune. It's 1,200 pages. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but it reads like a new book. It's huh. been 25 years since I've read it. And so it's like it's completely new. And I'm like, oh, this is so great. And so I went and read six of these long novels of hers this year. And my wife is just laughing. Um, she, she might almost get a little bit jealous because one time it was really stupid. I was putting because I've collected first editions of her books. And so she's a whole shelf in her library. And we're moving. I'm putting up one of her latest books, and I just thought about the time I'd spent, the hours I've spent. I mean, one novel, 1,200 pages. I said, do you have any idea how many hours of pleasure this woman has given me? <laughs> and Lisa <laughs> looks at me like, yeah, there's probably a better way <laughs> Say that. I could express that. <laughs> yeah. um, but here's what I love. Um, again, being a guy, as a woman, she helps me get into the psyche and the insights. Her characters are very different, and she writes them these are the early ones. Her Starbridge novels are probably more famous, and they're based on the history of the Church of England in the 20th century. But the, the other novels start out with a character, first person, that you go with for, I don't know, 150 pages, and then another character picks up the novel, and then another character. And so you only see the first character tangentially as they interact with this one. And you see their different motivations and one who's a villain, but now you hear their first person story and what happened. And then you see that one character believes a lie because you know what really happened earlier. And she just gets into motivation and she knows how to move plot forward. If you like her writing, the fact that it's 1200 pages will just make you thankful. I can't tell you how many days I'm just thinking, okay, get your work through, get done with this talk. You've got Susan Howitt in the evening uh, and it would make me look forward to the day. And what's so crazy and whacked out, I'd finish these 800, 900, 1200 page novels and then go order the next one on <laughs> Kindle because our hardback copies were in Houston. We were in the process ah. of moving and um, I would just want to start another one. So I'm um, I'm a huge fan of Susan Howitch. Uh, if people just want a fun fictional read, though, Ken Follett's uh, Pillars of the Earth mm. is a classic. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great one. And if they just want a book, I think one of the best nonfiction writers today is uh, Laura Hillenbrand. 
Mm-hmm. And her book, Unbroken, mm-hmm. uh, made into a movie and whatnot, though the movie didn't do the book justice. They denied... Well, they, they just omitted some key parts of the book because there are elements of faith that are in that. But just speaking as a writer, mm-hmm. I'm in awe of her ability as a writer. I do think as a nonfiction writer, she may be the most gifted one out there yeah, today. Awesome. Funny, funny story about that. We bought My Mom Unbroken for Christmas when it first came out. And my mom was kind of like in her earlier stages of dementia at the time, but she was an avid reader, loved books. And so we thought, here's something great. You know, she's going to pick up on this. My dad was in World War II, um, all of that. And so, but I would get calls from her from Minnesota and she's like, Lisa, someone here is dragging bodies around and... (laughs) And she just a little bit internalized it and it became a little too real. So we ended up having, she got like very scared at certain parts. So we ended up having to take oh, the book away see. from her. Yeah. I and mean, there were horrific it was just, things yeah, being described. It was a little bit too, it was a little too much. So for her, she wasn't separating reality from what was actually happening in the book, uh, her reality anyway. So that was a little bit rough, but Okay, folks. Well, there you have it. Um, we do not have, you know, here at Boundless, Susan's books or some of these other ones Gary's mentioned, but we do have Gary's books. And so <laughs> I want to mention two to you that uh, we are going to make available this week for a gift of any amount to Boundless. Um, the first one is The Sacred Search. And you know, we've talked about this so much here because this is like, if you haven't read The Sacred Search yet, like what are you even waiting for? Okay, so this is for you. Um, most of you, I mean, literally you guys, like a large population of your demographic are still single. Many of you want to be married. So this is just a great, I mean, talk about classics. Such a great classic from Gary on um, the pursuit of marriage, honoring marriage as a single person, what it looks like to you know, parse out what are godly virtues in a person that you're looking for. And so you really got to check that out. Um, The other one that I want to mention is his book, When to Walk Away. And we've talked to Gary about this book on our show. This is like, everyone needs to read this too, because you know that you are in contact every day with toxic people. You may be that person. Um, So maybe this book is going to help you discern some of that. But um, finding freedom from toxic people is the sub on that. And so you go, um, go to boundless.org, go to our show notes, you are going to see the book cover there, you just click on it, you give a gift uh, to boundless for any amount, and we will send a copy of one of these books to you as our thank you to you. So Gary, thank you so much for weighing in on this fun conversation. This was really fun for me. I mean, next to Jesus and my wife, books are, uh, are, are right up there. And so it's really fun to talk about something like this. Thank you, Lisa. Absolutely. My heart knows you are. You're constantly right here. Always near.
Well, hey, we have reached the end of the show almost. We've still got our inbox, and I'm going to answer this week's question. And it's kind of a short and sweet one. So our listener is asking, how do I set better boundaries with my activities so I can spend more time with family? So that's a good question and such a great opportunity to honor your family and your parents or whoever is maybe wanting you to spend more time with them. Of course, I'm assuming they want you to spend more time with them by this question. But anyway, um, what does it look like? Well, first of all, I think the first thing you can do is actually sit down with your family and talk to them about what is important to them. So, you know, I think sometimes we make assumptions about like, oh, my parents are just going to assume I'm going to be over every night. And then it's like, nah, we'd, we'd settle for one night a week. So figure out, you know, what what for them would be meaningful for you as far as spending time and prioritizing them. So that's kind of your first thing is have that conversation, figure out what their expectations are, and then you figure out, okay, what is actually workable and what isn't. So I think in some ways, um, you know, you can maybe work out a situation where in, in some ways spending time with them is a way of consolidating maybe time together. So when is everyone getting together? This is especially helpful if you're not all in the same town. So, you know, if you're talking about like, well, my family wants to see me, but I'm over in this other state or whatever, well, then you have to prioritize time and ways of getting together. And so um, like, for example, I just recently did uh, a trip uh, when out for my niece's high school graduation. And then with that, we kind of put together a little sibling reunion. And so we all prioritized that, made that happen, spent a week together, and it was good. We were all on the same page and willing to make that happen. But I think the... um, the other way you can really honor family and especially your parents, because for parents in their generations, this is a higher value, I think, is um, decide what time you're going to spend with them in what context. So maybe for some parents, it might be like, we would really love for you to, we'd love to all go to church together, or we'd love to all do a Sunday night dinner together, or we'd all, you know, so again, you're figuring out what those things are. And then it's like make and keep those commitments, okay? So one thing that's really going to irritate parents especially, especially if they're boomers or older Gen Xers because this is a high value for those generations, don't always feel like you have to keep your options open. I mean, it's not honoring to anyone to be like, well, okay, let's pencil it in. But if maybe a friend asks me to go do something, I'm going to bail on you guys. Uh, Make those commitments early and keep those commitments and really choose to, again, prioritize that time. You don't need to keep your options open on everything. Uh, The other thing I would say is also make sure you're committing to uninterrupted time with them. So this is, you know, when you say you're going to spend time with your family, make sure that you are spending time with your family. You're not going to be on your phone. You're not going to be taking texts from friends. You're not going to be cutting out early and saying, okay, well, I'm going to try to fit it all in. And kind of to that point, um, that is... Uh, something I would recommend too, maybe even on the front end of this exercise. And that is if you're having to ask this question, you might need to just straight up cut down on the number of activities you're doing. So it might, you know, bear for you to actually look at a calendar, write down things on a calendar, figure out your week or your month or your summer, whatever this is looking like. And you might have to start Uh, really taking to task uh, with a pen some of the things that might not need to happen at this 
season of life or at this time. And so, um, you know, and it could be something that is otherwise important. It could be like maybe there's just something, an activity or a class or something you need to take a pause on. Or it could be something a lot more frivolous and something that should just go anyway. Like, yeah, you don't need to do that many nights of Netflix a week or you don't need to hang out and just scroll through social and be doing all that. Find some more productive ways to spend your time. And so um, those are just a few ideas um, for getting started and, and hopefully you will find them encouraging. But again, I think communicating to your family that yes, you are a priority. I want to spend time with you and then making it happen and sticking to it. And again, it might be something you also might have to hold some boundaries of just saying, okay, like for me, you know, doing a a meal a week with you is going to work. Constantly checking in with you is not healthy, nor is that wise. And so make sure that you communicate that respectfully as well. So hopefully that will get you off to a good start and uh, give you some parameters. And again, kudos to you for wanting to honor your family and your parents in this space, because that is the right thing to do. So, all right, well, that is it for this week's show. Again, I sometimes give you a shout and ask you to pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love it when we can read great reviews and know that other people are reading them. And by that, they might uh, listen, uh, find out about the show and give it a chance. And so that's super awesome for us to do. In the meantime, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, walk like him. Disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.